Hi, this is the Think Queerly podcast, and I'm your host, Coach Darren Steele. And on the show, I help thought leaders, queer thinkers, change makers, and creatives become more skillful at making a measurable difference in the world. Now, today's a very special show. It is an interview with Michael Bach. He's an internationally recognized thought leader in inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. Now, we go deep into all of those topics, uh, certainly weighted heavily towards LGBTQ issues of inclusion and diversity. And I want to tell you just a little bit about Michael, although all of the information will be in the show notes, uh, as well as the links to all of his social media channels and websites. So he is the founder and chair of the Board of Directors of the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion. He's a nationally and internationally recognized thought leader and in, 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 as a subject matter expert in the fields of inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility, bringing vast knowledge of leading practices in a live setting to his work. So previous to taking on that role, he was the National Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for KPMG Canada, a role that he created and held for seven years. And over the course of his career, he has received repeated recognition for his work, um, being named Women of Influence Canada Diversity Champion, uh, Catalyst Canada Honours Human Resources Diversity Leader, uh, Inspire Awards LGBTQ Person of the Year, Out on Bay Street Leaders to be Proud of LGBT Advocate Workplace Award, and many more. Um, he is, or he has a postgraduate certificate in diversity management from, from Cornell University and holds the Cornell Certified Diversity Professional Advanced Practitioner designation. That is a mouthful. And his 2020 book, Birds of All Feathers, Doing Diversity and Inclusion Right, is a Globe and Mail Toronto Star and Amazon bestseller, uh, recipient of the Silver 2020 Nautilus Book Award in the category of Rising to the Moment. And this was the research that I um, took on before this podcast and doing um, in preparation to speak with Michael. So a lot of the content is grounded in this book. Um, but we also speak much more broadly. We speak to a lot of issues around LGBTQ inclusion and diversity. And then we talk about his forthcoming book, Alphabet Soup, The Essential Guide to LGBTQ2 Plus Inclusion, that's going to be released on March 29th. 2022. So all of the information is in the show notes. Like I said, this is a, at least to me, it was a really interesting, engaging, and fun interview. I think you'll get a lot of value out of this, whether you are using this for the workplace, a community organization, a volunteer position, if you work at a hospital, in schools, in sports teams, or in your day-to-day -day life. Think of how you can look at your current friendships and the people that you have in your life from a diversity and inclusion um, perspective. I think you will receive a tremendous amount of value from this podcast. And if you're listening, this was also recorded live in video, so you can watch it on YouTube. And if you're watching this on YouTube and you'd rather be listening to this as a podcast, it is available on all your favorite podcast players. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. All right, Michael Bach, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we met 
sort of um, not in person, but uh, sometime last year when I, I reached, or actually almost two years ago, because with COVID, everything seems to be shrunk. There's that <laughs> missing year, right? Um, I reached out uh, with respect to an organization here in Toronto um, just to find out if uh, you might want to be on a board to uh, vote for some community individuals uh, for Inspire Awards. And then I have been doing some work with a company in the UK, not right now. It's just like we're, we're talking uh, about how to sort of do some coaching and thought leadership work around like values and beliefs that speak to diversity and inclusion. And then all of a sudden you started showing up on my Instagram feed, which tells me that Instagram is listening to everything that I say and reading everything that I write. But I'm so glad that that happened because I reached out to you and your publicist and said, listen, let's, let's have a conversation because this would really work with what think queerly is all about, which is, um, acceptance, inclusion, diversity, thinking a little bit differently, as well as queer leadership, which I know isn't just what DNI is, mm-hmm. but that's why I wanted to have you here. Great. So maybe you could tell us who you are, where you've come from, what brought you into DNI, and then we'll sort of get into some more of the finer, more granule, granular, granular things, not grand, gradual. <laughs> Words are hard, especially yes. when we're in a pandemic. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, I'm Michael Bach. My personal pronouns are he, him, his. Mm-hmm. I have been working in uh, the area of inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility for over 15 years. Yeah. Um, started my career actually mostly in IT and worked in the IT field for a long time. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I, I sort of was living a double life. I came out as gay in, uh, I was 17, Mm -hmm. it's 1940 something, no, 1988. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And when I came out to my family about a year later, uh, long story short, my mother really instilled in me a belief that I had a responsibility Mm -hmm. to make the world a better place for people. Mm-hmm. particularly as a white man. Yeah. Um, and so I've, I've been doing this thing that we now call diversity and inclusion for over 30 years mm-hmm. um, uh, through various LGBTQ2 plus organizations, through women's organizations, immigrant organizations, but it wasn't a job. It wasn't something anybody was going to pay me for. Right. So it was sort of, I, I led these double lives. And then mm-hmm. uh, when I was working in uh, the IT consulting practice for KPMG, uh, long story, but I had the opportunity to write the business case for a creation of a role in diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, 15 plus years ago. Wow. And I haven't looked back and it has been a, a fantastic 15 years. And it it's this wonderful world of marrying my personal passion and my profession. And I think that is incredibly exciting. So from that moment when you were able to sort of write a business case for basically being the DNI uh, diversity and inclusion person, when did you then go on get more education? Where did you go? And, and then you eventually founded um, the organization Canadian Center for Diversity and Inclusion. How did that all come about? Well, 
I think the reality is I stepped into a role that I was not qualified for, but the caveat mm-hmm. to that is there wasn't really anybody that was qualified for it. It was, yeah. it was a, a profession that was very much in its infancy. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that just meant a lot of reading and absorbing information. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 2010, I enrolled uh, at Cornell University in their master's program in diversity management and started sort of formalizing my education. Um, and just to interject there, would yeah, that have, yes. would 2010 be about the beginning of education being available at the university level or when oh, DNI so. sort of got its name or yeah, when did that I was, happen? I was relative, I think I was the third class mm-hmm. um, through the program at Cornell. Mm-hmm. Uh, there still to this day, it isn't a, an undergrad program that you can take in diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certificate programs that you can take at a couple different universities here in Canada. Um, there are, uh, there is the master's program at Cornell, but it is few and far between. There is still not enough formalized education that really teaches you the skills you need to have to be a DNI practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was sort of learning by mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had the fundamentals of it, you know, change management, project management. Um, but there wasn't really a place I could go to get that more formal structure until I found the Cornell, Cornell program. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was from that Cornell program that really started to give me some structure and, uh, you know, deeper understanding of what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I also, at the same time, um, was the deputy chief diversity officer for KPMG International. Mm-hmm. And I, in 2010, I came back into the Canadian firm. Uh, so I wasn't in a global role anymore. And I sort of came from, you know, a 300,000 foot view down to a 30,000 foot view and really looked at Canada and saw a gap. Mm-hmm. Um, we're the second largest country in the world. And there's a whole bunch of groups that roll up under this diversity and inclusion umbrella. And it was very challenging for employers, particularly those that are large national employers or multinationals, to look across this this country and say, okay, if I'm in Prince George, BC, and I want to work with an indigenous group, who do I talk to? Mm -hmm. Or if I'm in Quebec and I'm looking for a women's organization, who do I have to go to? So I saw an opportunity to create something uh, that has since become the Canadian Center for Diversity and Inclusion with the goal of broadly educating Canadians on the value of diversity and inclusion. Right. And this might be a really good point um, to ask almost the stupid question, but an important one is what is diversity and inclusion? That is a great question. And everyone who's listening will have their own definition. The way I define diversity and inclusion I say that diversity is the thing that makes you different. Yeah. And that can be about your sex or gender. It can be about your ethnicity or race. It can Mm -hmm. be about ability. Um, It also could be about your learning style, where Mm -hmm. you grew up, your socioeconomic background. When there's a model from a book called Workforce America, it's called The Wheel of Diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, It's from 1991. And The model really helps you to understand that when we talk about human diversity, we are talking about a much broader array of characteristics 
than are traditionally considered part of diversity. And the traditional conversation around diversity tends to be about marginalization and underrepresentation. Right. And the reality is that we're the sum of all of our parts mm-hmm. and all of those parts kind of push us up and down the hierarchy, the, the, the ladder of, of, uh, uh, of the, what we call the oppression Olympics. Um, and, uh, diversity is about anything that makes you unique. Inclusion is about creating spaces where people can exist, mm-hmm. be they workplaces, schools, hospitals, whatever, where people can bring their whole self to work, the whole self to the hospital, and you don't have to leave anything at the door. Mm -hmm. And it's important to mention that that includes straight, white, able-bodied men. Yeah. Because by definition, they're different. They're different from you. They're different from me. Yeah. And I think that is an important distinction. Again, I'm not talking about underrepresentation or marginalization. Straight white able-bodied men have had it pretty good for a few thousand years. But at the same time, if we're truly being inclusive, mm-hmm. everyone's included. Yeah. And that includes straight white able-bodied men. That speaks to a point in your book, uh, Birds of All Feathers, so perfectly positioned behind you. <laughs> what this? Um, yeah, what's that? Uh, this idea um the social justice model um versus um i've got my notes down here well you, you tell me there's a social justice model and the creativity and innovation model and and there was just as an interjection i was listening to uh, a slate podcast uh interview with sarah shulman who just published the book uh about um one of the many books about act up um and that there is now or what is seen a, a lot of gay men from that period who were white, who were well-to-do, um, which gave them a certain amount of capability to take time off work, to work and act up, to fight mm-hmm. that battle, now seem to feel left out of the equation. Sure. Um, and it's just this aspect of some people say, no, no, you have to give up some of your rights. You have to subjugate yourself but that only creates more discord and more division yeah it's it's a great point darren and and we talk about i talk about the two different models in um in my book and the first model being social justice which dates back to i mean arguably the suffragette movement of the early 1900s but Mm -hmm. really more succinctly the civil rights movement to the 1950s and 60s Mm -hmm. um and it essentially said i'm obviously dramatically paraphrasing, but it essentially said that uh, a straight, white, able-bodied man had to lose in order for someone else to gain. Yeah. And that it was a this massive power dynamic. Mm-hmm. And of course, in that equation, the straight, white, able-bodied man who is in the majority of power, mm-hmm. 85% in the US, 85% of executive positions are held by straight, white, able-bodied men, yet they make up somewhere around 25% of the working age population. Mm-hmm. Um, but it requires them to approach this work from a place of self-interest or, yeah. or lack of self-interest rather right, to right. say that, that they will give up that power <laughs> willingly and there's mm-hmm. no incentive for them to do it. Mm-hmm. The creativity and innovation model looks at the world through the lens of problems. 
mm-hmm. the world is changing in at a rapid rate. I mean, dramatic moments in time where we have seen just these seismic shifts in how we function as a planet. And the core of the creativity innovation model is focusing on solutions to those problems. Mm-hmm. The means to get there is diversity. Mm-hmm. It's creating teams that have a diversity of thought, mm-hmm. which ultimately comes in a diversity of human characteristic mm-hmm. and bringing them together to develop the solutions. Yeah. The end result is not the diversity. The end result is the innovation and the creativity. But the only way to get there is through having diverse teams. And if you approach it from that perspective, our straight, white, able-bodied man who may be feeling like he's not invited to the party anymore or he's feeling marginalized, he's feeling threatened by this conversation. If you approach it from the position of creativity innovation, he looks at it and says, oh, this is about the betterment of my business. Okay, mm-hmm. I can get behind that. Mm-hmm. And then it's not, it's not threatening to him. Mm-hmm. It's to say we need the best talent. And if you look at the numbers, straight, white, able-bodied men in Canada represent just shy of 30% of the working age population. So statistically, your workforce should be reflective of those numbers. There's things in there that that uh, change that uh, that variable, but overall... And then it's not about, oh, we have to you know, hire the black guy for tokenism. We have to promote the woman so that we have more women in executive positions. No, we need to promote the women into executive positions because statistically, when you look at the numbers, companies perform better when they have better gender balance in their executive. Yeah. It's, it is two sides of the same coin. The social justice approach has not had the effect it is intended to have. Creativity, innovation gets us a lot further ahead, a lot faster. And mm-hmm. I want to come to your point. Your come to your point about ACT UP, and it's an mm-hmm. interesting one because it's something that I've felt as a queer man who um, who uh, came out in the eighties uh, at the beginning of the AIDS crisis. We had no rights. Um, I was fighting and mm-hmm. fought very hard uh, with my community to get where we are today. Since the advent of of marriage equality, no one cares that I'm gay. Mm -hmm. And I have become part of the majority because I am white and I am Mm -hmm. cisgender Mm -hmm. and I am a man. Mm -hmm. And I talk about this in the book. I was giving a speech and to a bunch of people who work in safety and we were yakking away and they were saying how included I was. (laughs) And I said, "Ah, yes, but white man trumps all. Mm -hmm. And it's the truth. The marginalization with the, within the queer community is very much felt by women and people of color and other marginalized yeah. groups. As a white man, I don't feel that anymore. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that I can't be still part of that change. Yeah. It doesn't mean that I should suddenly be excluded or punished mm-hmm. for something that I can't change. Mm-hmm. The truth of the matter is that I'm on the inside now Mm -hmm. and I have the ability to impact the lives of other members of the LGBTQ2 plus communities Mm -hmm. simply by saying what I say and doing what I do. Yeah. 
And I think it's, it's important that we not try to eat our young as we advance the cause. Yeah. It's, it's like a very, very narrow tight rope. Um, uh, if that's the right word to, to walk across, um, because there's so many things to try and balance, which is an impossibility because balance is something it's, it's a balancing act, right? It's like being on that teeter totter. It's always a bit of an up and down. And if one side is more weighted than the other, then the lighter side has to work all that harder to constantly try and work against that imbalance of the load. But there's a couple of things that sort of want to touch on and come back to there's, Mm. There's an aspect of confirmation bias, right? So in hiring, um, uh, I wish I could remember because I was thinking about this when I was preparing something I had read quite some time ago somewhere else about, um, and you touch on it on your book, this aspect of like hiring blind, like mm-hmm. changing the names of the applicants. So you don't know if the person is white, black, male, female, LGBTQ, or what have you, and just trying to look at the skills that the person is bringing in their resume, for example. So this one particular company tended to hire either through sort of nepotism or their internal network. It's like, oh, Joe, I know somebody here. You got to hire. And they bring that person in. They maybe seem like a good fit, but they weren't bringing that diversity. Mm -hmm. They were bringing more of the same. And it also reminds me of, I think it's called, I think it's Jay Samet's book, Disrupt You, or something like that, where he talked about all these big companies like Kodak, Universal Pictures, that have failed in different ways because, you know, maybe the internet disrupted it. But also the board, the management said, no, this is never going to change. It's always going to be the same. And what they wanted to not pay attention to was what people were doing in this moment, what these young influencers were doing, right or wrong. And what it comes back to, it kind of makes me laugh at the same time, is that if you could show a higher dollar figure or profit margin, that's when people listen to you. I wish it wasn't always just that being the case, but it's what we have to work with. Absolutely. I come from the generation of act up, of Mm. fighting, Mm. of protesting, and we got nothing done. Mm -hmm. And I learned a number of years ago, that if we pitch the argument towards what motivates our leaders, mm-hmm. impact to top and bottom line, mm-hmm. more money in, less money out, yeah. they get it. They're mm-hmm. smart people. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, but <laughs> <laughs> if you can present a clear argument that shows that the value that it is going to provide, yeah. then they listen. Yeah. And it's not to say that I've given up on my social justice roots. Far from yeah. it. Yeah. I'm just more interested in the ultimate end goal of change, mm. not in how we get there. Yeah. That's a really powerful distinction, the ultimate end goal of change and not how we get there, which allows for greater creativity, creativity and innovation, like you said. And it makes me think, in the back of my head, I was wondering as you were talking, like, how much this would influence the the more important mortal things we have to be concerned, like climate change and what have you, which often seems to be the big uh, resistant factor in businesses. Oh, well, we don't want to do this. We don't want to do that because that's going to cost or we're going to have to retrain people. How, how is your thinking around, okay, let's say you get in the door, 
you're able to show more money kept, less money spent. You're going to have this innovation and creation model. How does that then start to shift? What have you observed, let's say over five, 10 years, the change in the power balance at, let's say, the C-level or the board level in different companies that you've worked with? How has it improved? Has it stayed the same? What's happened? It depends on the organization. Mm -hmm. I mean, since joining CCDI in 2013, I've worked with hundreds, if not thousands of different employers. Mm -hmm. I think the ones that recognize that this isn't a threat, Mm -hmm. that this is about, you know, better business. I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. Um, Women account for more than 50% of undergraduate degrees. Mm -hmm. They have since 1979-1980. Thus, all of the research tells us that that if you have three or more women on your executive team, you're you will perform better as a com- as a, a company in comparison to your competitors. Mm-hmm. And there's very specific data on that. Um, that's about good business smarts. And the CEOs that get that, the board chairs that get that, do something about it. That's not to say that they've run out and fire half their executive team. That's never the point. <clears throat> That's to say that when they are hiring mm-hmm. for a, um, uh, you know, an executive role, when they're hiring for one of their direct reports because somebody retired, somebody resigned, mm-hmm. or worse, then they say, okay, if I'm going to see six candidates, three of them need to be women, and they mm-hmm. need to be qualified women. It's not tokenism. It's not just find some woman and put her into the process. It has to be qualified women that way when they're making their decision Mm -hmm. they are actually hiring from the best and the brightest Mm -hmm. as opposed to just hiring from the ones they're comfortable with Mm -hmm. so the change happens because they get the logic behind Mm -hmm. the emotional argument doesn't hold weight it doesn't last and we need that the heart and the head. Mm-hmm. And people ask me all the time, which is more important. And I would say the head is more important than the heart mm-hmm. because compassion don't pay the bills. And it is ultimately when you're the CEO of a company, your job is to make money for the company. Mm-hmm. Unless you're in the private public sector, but still they're, you know, your job in the public sector is to do more with less. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, you can see that positioning. And I th- I'm thinking of one client in particular, uh, I was working with their board of directors and they want their board of directors was traditionally majority men and all white. They'd mm-hmm. never had a person of color or an indigenous person on their board. And um, they came to me and they said, what should we do? And I said, well, how bold do you want to be? How dramatic are we going? Mm-hmm. And they said, we want to be bold. We want to lead. I said, okay, then designate these new seats. They had two seats coming up on the board. Only interview people of color or indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Full stop. And of course, there was lots of hand wringing and where are we going to find people with the skills? And I helped them to find those people with those skills. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. It was, and they actually end up having too many qualified people for the job. Mm -hmm. But they had never actually looked outside of their own sphere of influence right. to find new candidates. So it, it's just a matter of being willing to stop doing things the way you traditionally have yeah. and doing them a little different to ultimately find what you're looking for. Yeah. This comes back to what we, we touched on earlier. So that's a very, I don't know if it's a unique example. It's a very specific example of saying you're going to interview candidates that are indigenous or black. Mm -hmm. And what exactly what you said, how was that perceived? You touched on it. What kind of, what was the conversation like? Was that perceived outside of the organization or by other staff that weren't maybe privy to that if they found out about that those are the kind of things that interest me is the the social justice warrior might think well this is great but the person who thinks oh well then they're taking away my opportunity to apply for this job because i happen to be white and a man i mean and, and this goes right back to what we were talking about at the beginning how how do you talk about that to the other people that haven't decided to test this out yeah. and see how it goes? You have to lay out, lay out a very solid mm -hmm. business case mm -hmm. and use data and fact. You look mm -hmm. around. This was a, a, a large sporting organization in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and they looked across the board and the board did not reflect the population that they served. Okay. And the argument was very simple, very simple. Mm -hmm. They needed to reflect Canada. 23% mm -hmm. people of color, 5% indigenous, mm -hmm. um, 13 and a half or 20%, depending on the stat you read, about 20% people living with a disability, 8% mm -hmm. LGBTQ2+, et cetera, et cetera, 50% female. Mm -hmm. And they didn't. And as an organization to remain relevant, mm. they need to reflect the population that they're there to serve. Yeah. The board and the executive of the organization needs to reflect that population. Yeah. If you look at the numbers, straight white able-bodied men make up 30% of the working age population in, in the country. And that number is shrinking, yeah. not growing. So the business case was very, very simple for them to make. And it's not tokenism. Mm -hmm. You have to put that there's no one's asking for a handout. Mm -hmm. They're asking for a hand up. Right. They're asking for equitable treatment. They're asking to be part of the conversation. But mm -hmm. board positions notoriously mm -hmm. for profit, uh, public sector, private sector, large and small, notoriously board positions are given to our friends. If I've got a board seat available, I'll say, oh, does anybody know anybody? And yeah. someone will say, oh, yeah, you know what? My friend, Mike, he's looking for a board seat. He was the CEO of such and such, and he was the CEO, CFO of this and that. Oh, great. Send him you know, over to me, and suddenly Mike's on the board. That's not a competitive process. Yeah. And it's tokenism, and we hire in our own image. Mm -hmm. versus 
we deliberately go out in the market. We seek out people who do not look like me Mm -hmm. so that we have a candidate population to pick from that is reflective of the population and is reflective of the best and brightest. But if you're only fishing in one pond, you're only going to catch the fish that are in that pond. Yeah. You made two, um, you talk at length in, in your book about this and from two different, um, angles. One, if you aren't as a company reflective of your customers, there was an example of, um, a chip company trying to speak to the Latino community. That was the one example. And, um, then hiring for diversity, but then people coming up the ladder and then eventually leaving the company because the harder you went, the wider it got, the more cis male it became. Mm-hmm. So there's the imbalance, as we're talking about here, within the organization, but then there's also the perceived imbalance for your customers. So maybe share some more insights about some real world examples that you've, yeah. you've had the experience with. Ultimately, you need to understand your customer and everyone has a customer before Mm -hmm. people get bent out of shape. Um, Mm. You know, municipalities, their customer is the citizens of the municipality. Hospital, Mm. it's your patient. University, it's the student. Everyone has a customer in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. And you need to understand your customers. You need to understand what motivates them, what inspires them, what they need. Mm -hmm. And the example you talk about, uh, which I talk about in the, the book, is a bit of a famous one. Uh, Frito-Lay, mm-hmm. the chip company, wanted to get into the Latin Hispanic market. And it's worth millions of dollars in the United States, billions of dollars. And they tried developing a guacamole-flavored guacamole tortilla chip, and they mm-hmm. kept failing. They did it twice, and it failed both mm-hmm. times. But they got no input from people from the Latinx community. So it was a whole bunch of white folks determining what Latinx folks wanted. Mm-hmm. And on the third try, they uh, engaged their employee resource group called mm-hmm. Adelante. And the, the ERG took the product and did a bit of market research on their own with their family and friends. And what happened is they changed the bag, they changed the marketing, they changed the product a bit. <coughs> And they had, um, they sold a million units of this Mm -hmm. product in their first year, the largest Mm -hmm. launch of a product they'd ever had in the company's history. So from then on, they realized that they needed to take their product to the people who would, who were buying it, who Mm -hmm. had the potential market. It was, you know, this is very early market testing of products, um, and why wouldn't you use your own people? The flip side of that is when it becomes just about the buck. Yeah. There is a, a company in the U.S., it's a long story, but they decided they wanted to get in the Latinx market. And they were opening stores in the community, <clears throat> and they were advertising in Spanish. And then on day one, people walked into the stores and no one spoke Spanish. <laughs> And it blew up. Yeah. And the community started asking questions. How many Latinx executives do you have? Do you have an employee resource group? 
How much do you sponsor in the community, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, the head of marketing was fired mm-hmm. from that organization and rightly so. Because if you look at a, a market share and you think, oh, we want that juicy pot of money. Mm-hmm. That's great. Do you understand that juicy pot of money? Do you understand right. who's attached to that? And if you don't, that's a problem. <laughs> if you're a bank and you want to attract the LGBTQ2 plus consumer to bring their dollars to your bank, mm-hmm. and I walk in and say I'm trans or a trans person of color, and I face transphobia, homophobia, biphobia in that bank, mm-hmm. not only am I gone, I'm going to tell everybody. Yeah. And bad news travels twice as fast as good. So you need to understand your customer. And in order to understand your customer, you have to reflect them. Makes me think when you brought up the example of the bank and speaking to the community, the contentious subject around pride parades of which we haven't Um, had one in Toronto for two years is, is, you know, all the companies that sort of start coming out and, you know, this year there there wasn't too much. Most of it was on social media where everybody's putting a pride flag or, or the multicolored flag that now includes um, the colors to represent trans or, you know, there's so much variety, but then it disappears. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how, any words of advice or wisdom or ways of looking at that with respect to not only that time of year, but how we, you know, this really piggybacks on what you just said. We, as the consumers, LGBTQ people who then see these companies doing this and question, um, I'm not promoting in favor of one way or the other, but, and without getting ourselves into trouble, I'll just say, you know, like, TD Bank in Canada does a good job of always being at the forefront of of putting their money where their mouth is. And whether they have made mistakes or not, I'm sure they have. Um, No other bank is doing, uh, you know, true diversity and inclusion, I think, in the way that 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 they are doing it. And they're kind of setting a very high bar. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Um, To to not to defend TD Bank, because they certainly don't need it. But the. When you look at TD Bank, mm-hmm. their LGBTQ2 plus content on their website is there year round. Mm-hmm. They have LGBTQ2 plus advertising that happens year round. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not, okay, it's June, we can be gay again. Yeah. <laughs> um, they, they are really walking the talk. So I would say two mm-hmm. things on this. One, I have no problem with the commoditization of pride. Bill's got to get paid. Yeah. And why not get, get some corporate schlub to pay the bill? Mm-hmm. Because parades cost money. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pride's but Pride Toronto's budget, I think, is two or three million dollars. Mm-hmm. And you are not raising that money on uh loony and toony donations on the street. That does not happen. Yeah. So that's one part. But I do agree that with the uh, the feedback that has been received, particularly this year, louder mm-hmm. than I've ever heard it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, <clears throat> I promise you I'm going to be gay in July. Yeah. I'm gay almost every day of the year. I take the high holy holidays off for obvious reasons. But 
I'm, you know, it's pride 365. And I push this with clients. I argue it quite vehemently that we need to be talking about LGBTQ2 plus inclusion year round, not just in June. Mm -hmm. We could be talking about it in um, March on March 31st, first, which is trans day of visibility. Talk about it on May 17th, which is international day against homophobia, biphobia, transphobia. We can mm-hmm. talk about Lesbian Awareness Week and Bisexual Week and National or International Pronouns Day and National Coming Out Day. We can spread it out. Mm-hmm. And I think what employers tend to try to do is they say, okay, February, that's Black History Month. We'll talk about the Blacks then. Yeah. And then we've got May. Oh, that's for the Asians. Mm-hmm. And then June's for the gays. <laughs> but what about the Indigenous people? Because that's also Indigenous History Month and so mm-hmm. on. And Mm -hmm. what they should be doing is interweaving all of this throughout the year. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm black, I'm still going to be black in March. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, we don't just get a month. Yeah. And, Um, and as you said much earlier, what we didn't talk about, it's like, this is intersectionality. So you could be black and queer of some, you know, denomination. Exactly. And I think that's the other piece that these employers need to take into consideration Mm -hmm. is you and I do not represent the entire LGBTQ2 plus communities. Mm -hmm. We are one aspect of it. Mm -hmm. I am, I am one cisgender gay man. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at your advertising and all the work you're doing, you can't just include me. Mm-hmm. You have to include all members of the community, yeah. some of whom you may not be terribly comfortable around. Yeah. But it's your job to get over that, not mine. Yeah. This touches on the, the, the challenge of the acronym um, oh, for all of us, the ever-expanding LGBTQ, you know, and um, I've sometimes just defaulted to saying queer, but I recognize that, you know, queer is sometimes a way of thinking and it can be used as an identification, but it has more of a political bent. Um, And, you know, I long for the day when we don't need these acronyms anymore, but there's this aspect of if we don't name it, it won't be recognized. If we don't at first name it, we can't say this person is as deserving of human dignity as any other. And part of what they are needing with respect to their dignity at the moment is to be accepted for how they choose or feel that they are and how they are showing up in the world. Mm-hmm. Probably one of the most difficult aspects of this ever expanding acronym. And when within that acronym, the stronger one fights for the individuality of that acronym, which is not, I'm not suggesting homogeneity within lgbtq we're a collection of networks mm-hmm. we're not a single community no and we see that by how upset people get during pride month for maybe not having their parade or or or, or like you know uh block rama being moved by pride or, or whatever the politics may be how what sort of experience have you had from your own observation of being part of the community, your own experience, and then bringing that into the workplace with all yeah. of this? Yeah. I'm just giving you a really easy question. A, to answer yeah. Just lob me one over there. 
Um, so first of all, interesting fact for your listeners, mm-hmm. it is not an acronym. It's an initialism. Oh, I love that. Acronym is a set of letters that form a word like NASA, mm. NASA. But an initialism is a set of letters that you can't make a word out of. And saying just doesn't mm-hmm. work. It's not a good word. Anyway, so uh, and I, it's, there's a reason why I know that. Um, I come from the generation of it was just the L and the G. <clears throat> Before the invention of bi and trans people. Mm-hmm. Um, totally Me too. Yeah. And then <laughs> as I started to get older, we started to, we, the B was in the initialism. Yeah. And then the T. And then the Q. And now the <laughs> two. And some people will put the two at the front of the initialism. <clears throat> and um, then we've added the plus sign or the asterisk. Mm-hmm. I will say that I am comfortable with whatever initialism others are comfortable with. Mm-hmm. I think we have, it has gone completely overboard with the LGBTQQIAAODP plus, and no, I'm not making any of that up. Mm-hmm. Um, I get the need for identity. If I'm demisexual or pansexual, I may not see myself in LGBTQ2+. I get that. But to say LGBTQIAAOPD in casual conversation mm-hmm. is a little difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, the intention of the plus sign being added to the initialism is that it repre- it acknowledges that the LGBTQ2 is not representative of all identities under the umbrella. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right um, that we are not one community. We are a series of communities strung together with an initialism mm-hmm. because we have different motivators. We have different needs, different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only thing that bonds us is that we are not straight and or cisgender. Right. Um, and then people add one of the A's in the longer initialism is for allies. So suddenly we are adding straight yeah. and cisgender people. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the workplace, there's a lot of discomfort about this, mm-hmm. about what initialism should we be using? And, you know, are we going to offend someone by using the Q? And should we put the two first? Yeah. And, 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 and my advice is first of all, don't overthink this. Yeah. Um, be respectful. Ask your people. Mm-hmm. Um, go with what you're comfortable with, understanding that it is constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, there are different versions in the U.S. than in Canada. So in the U.S., they say LGBTQIA mm-hmm. is very common. It's the one I hear the most now. Um, I being for intersex and a being for allies. Um, you know, I, I think it's just about what you're comfortable with as long as it's being done in a respectful manner. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the important part for us as queer people, as members of this, this alphabet mafia is that we understand that the intention is to be respectful. Mm-hmm. So don't get bent out of shape if they don't use the full initialism. Yeah. Um, 
it is a constantly evolving conversation. And I, I don't think of myself as an expert on this. Yeah. I feel like a referee more than anything that I'm sort of like, okay, well, what are we comfortable with here? And then you work with what you're comfortable with. Yeah. Um, I, as long as we don't hear things like, oh, gay pride mm-hmm. or the gay community, mm-hmm. I don't get my own community or my own pride day. Um, it's LGBTQ2 plus pride mm-hmm. or LGBTQ2 plus community. Mm-hmm. And as long as it's being done in a respectful manner, I think that's the most we should necessarily hope for. Yeah. Let me ask you sort of to uh, maybe a two part question. Cause we, I mean, I, I, I knew we would, that this is think queerly. So <laughs> move more into the queer LGBTQ aspect of diversity and inclusion. Sure. Um, what I'll ask, I'll ask the question separately. What is the most important aspect of your work for you when you show up, when you're meeting with a company for the first time or somewhere down the road, you've got in your head, the core, the purpose, the mission, or the, the values that drive you for this work? What's the most important either thing you're looking to accomplish or understanding or awareness that you're looking to achieve? Mm, that's a big question. Mm-hmm. I would say that when I go into a, a workplace, <clears throat> um, I'm looking for an openness. Mm-hmm. You know, every every organization is going to be different, so it's not like I can say there must be this. Mm. Um, I'm looking for an openness. I'm looking for respect. For me, a lot of this work is about respect. Mm-hmm. You don't have to agree. I'm gay. I'm not going to have everyone agreeing with that, and I don't need everyone to agree with it. What I need is to be treated with respect. Mm -hmm. And that means that I have equitable opportunity. I don't hear homophobic, transphobic, or biphobic jokes. Um, I am not snickered at. People don't misgender me. They don't, um, you know, refer to my husband differently than I refer to him. One thing drives me crazy when people say partner instead of husband after Mm -hmm. I've said husband. I use the term husband very specifically. We are legally wed and he's a man. Mm -hmm. Um, I just want a respectful environment and that's the best I can hope for. Mm -hmm. If I can get you to respect me and see me as a human being, then with any luck, theoretically <laughs> um your belief system may start to change yeah versus seeing me as uh, subversive or right. a deviant right. um you're never going to get everybody to buy in mm-hmm. but it, when you consider just to throw out a statistic when marriage equality was passed in canada in 2005 48% of Canadians were in support. It's now over 80%. Yeah. Nothing happened. Still same people. Yeah. But the sky didn't fall and people's belief changed because they suddenly knew a couple 
who were LGBTQ2 plus and married. Yeah. And oh, we really like them. So, oh, guess this thing's okay. Yeah. Um, we have to do that though in a respectful way for both sides. Yeah. It's not about you show me respect. It's about I'll show you respect and I expect the same of you. That's the this, number one thing I'm looking for. Beautiful. And, you know, the other aspect of inclusion is that the more diversity there is in the inclusionary aspect of community, be it in work or elsewhere, and the more contact that people have with difference, that's what helps break down the boundaries. Because if Absolutely. all you have is an idea of what's different, I don't understand this thing, the first meeting, like you said, you might not feel like the person gets you or is uncomfortable with you because you're a gay man. Oh, no. But when you bring value to the table, something that's going to help them, that's what starts to break down the boundaries. And that's, you know, the, the sad but also the interesting part about human behavior. We're all that way yep. to different degrees. Very much so. Inclusion work, I've always said, my job is to help people become more comfortable with the things that make them uncomfortable. Ah, yeah. Because the only reason our brains reject things is because we're not used to them. Yep. Yeah. And so once we get comfortable with them, it just yeah. becomes easy for our brains to process. Yeah. And that in itself is ultimately what we're going for if we can see each other as human beings, if we can learn to respect one another, if we can get through the scary unknown, mm. then we treat each other better, yeah. which ultimately leads to more inclusion. Yeah. I think this is one of the big challenges for diversity and inclusion and, and acceptance is, you know, people throw around the word uh, tribalism. So you read mm, Sapiens yeah. by uh, Yuri um, Yuval Harari, and he talks about, you know, uh, groups of apes, maybe up to about 110, 120, they are congenial. Anything larger, infighting starts, defensive posturing starts. Well, we, we are apes to a different sense. Mm -hmm. And from a neuroscience perspective, we're always looking either from the fight, flight, freeze part of our brain, the amygdala, am I safe? Uh, is this a threatening situation where I might lose my life or I have to like defend myself? And then from the um, anterior cingulate cortex, the, the emotional part of the brain that says, do I feel accepted? Do I feel connection? Do I feel care? So if you develop a tribe of the people you feel comfortable with, great. And you can develop that tribe at work. But then lo and behold, someone comes in who isn't part of that tribe. And this is the constant that we're always going to have to deal with. It's a big planet. It's almost 8 billion people. Mm -hmm. There's going to be discord. Um, and it's, it's something that, you know, I think about and then realize, you know, <laughs> I can't solve the world's problems, no. but I can at least start one little step at a time. Mm -hmm. Now, piggybacking on this question, um, it, it may be very similar, but what would you say is the single biggest lesson or piece of wisdom that you can offer about diversity and inclusion? 
Uh, I would say the the biggest lesson is that we're not dealing in right and wrong. Okay. It's just, we don't, this isn't a black and white. This mm-hmm. is shades of gray. Mm-hmm. And not magenta. It's not <laughs> shades of pink Yes, <laughs> from blush to bashful. Mm. Um, someone will get that joke. Um, the reality is we like to, most people like to approach the world from right and wrong, mm-hmm. from that position of right and wrong. And it's, that's not what we're talking about here. Yeah. We're talking about minuscule little increments of difference. And if you mm-hmm. can let go of that idea of right and wrong, mm-hmm. uh, you get a lot further ahead a lot faster. Everyone has a lived experience and every lived experience is valid. Mm-hmm. Just because it's a different lived experience from my lived experience doesn't make it wrong and it doesn't yeah. make it right. Yeah. I have my lived experience. I can't change that. Mm-hmm. I come from a scat of privilege. <clears throat> I grew up in a very well-to-do family. You know, I had never denied anything but that's not my fault. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make my lived experience wrong. It just makes it different from another mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. And I think that is an important lesson for people to learn, particularly people who I would say are on the extreme sides of this conversation, both right. sides. <laughs> Homosexuality is a sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and the flip side of that is people within the LGBTQ2 plus communities who look at someone like me and say, what do you know? You're just a white guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excuse me? Girl, I was fighting this fight long before you were a glean in your daddy's eye. <laughs> um, it's, it's just shades of difference. And if we can let go of right and wrong, get a lot further ahead a lot faster i think how you've described this is is the foundation of equity yes it is yeah Yeah. and and the the conversation around equity and equality is a very important one equality Mm -hmm. is to treat people the same Mm -hmm. equity is to treat people how they need to be treated and there are you know I'll, i'll use an example there are various uh programs that have been designed to um, promote people who have traditionally been marginalized and underrepresented into senior leadership and board positions. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that doesn't take into consideration is the inequity that has existed in life. And we have not, not we have seen inequity in our society so succinctly with COVID, where the percentage of people with col- of color Mm-hmm. who are frontline workers yeah. who have caught the virus is significantly mm-hmm. higher than the percentage who are white. Mm-hmm. So you, we can say, oh, we need to promote more indigenous people in our organization. We need, we need to hire and promote more indigenous people. That's a great laudable effort. Mm-hmm. The statistics will tell you that 50% of indigenous kids don't graduate grade eight. Of those that do, 50% of them don't graduate high school. 
Of those, the 25% of Indigenous kids, how many of them go on to post-secondary education and what programs do they go on to? <laughs> a lot of them go into social services and healthcare. Yeah. They're not going into law or policing. So you might be a law firm saying, oh, we want to hire more people who are Indigenous. Okay, great. It's a 10-year road to get there. And here are the numerous things you're going to have to do to affect that change. Mm -hmm. It's you have to take equity into consideration as part of these decision-making factors, because we do not all have the same opportunity. It just doesn't exist. Let's pivot to, we talked a lot about content that is in your book, Birds of All Feathers. And I didn't want it to just be like a, a, a Q&A for a book that's been out, I think, for about a year. But you've got another project, and it's called it's Alphabet good. Soup, The Quintessential Guide to LGBTQ2 Plus Inclusion. So what's that all about? Um, it is about chemical engineering. Okay. No. Uh, I feel like the title says it all. It's yeah, about LGBTQ2 plus inclusion. Um, it goes beyond workplaces. This is the mm -hmm. first. Uh, Birds of All Feathers was very much about workplaces. And in writing Alphabet Soup, I said, I want to go beyond workplaces. I want to talk about LGBTQ2 plus inclusion in schools and hospitals yeah. and yeah. Um, religious and faith-based organizations and volunteer organizations. Okay. Um, and the theory is the same. It's not like there's a magic thing for a, a volunteer organization, mm -hmm. but I, I just wanted to make sure that people saw themselves in it. Yeah. Um, I wrote this because I think there's a lot of misinformation about LGBTQ2 plus inclusion. I also think there is a whole lot of assumption that everyone mm -hmm. gets it, mm -hmm. that everyone understands how to create LGBTQ2 plus inclusive spaces. Mm -hmm. and it's not the case. Hmm. I don't know if you, you're a, a musical theater addict like I am, but there's been a bit of a, a dramatic situation unfolding with the cast of Jagged Little Pill on Broadway, okay. where there are accusations um, of, uh, you know, accusations that they have been mistreating uh, people who are trans and non-binary. Mm -hmm. And... This is the musical Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette. It's a Broadway musical. You think if there's a safe space for people from the queer community, it would be Broadway. Yeah. My point is that we can't make those assumptions. Yeah. And I wanted to write a book that, again, is very practical. It's very much an instruction manual, mm -hmm. um, but really could hand it to any organization and say, here's how to do it. Yeah. Here's the roadmap. You have yeah. no excuses left. Yeah. Wonderful. So it's almost like, in a sense, you take out the profit model and focus on the creativity yes. and innovation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. It, it's really, I, I use a model in the book and I, I cannot claim credit for, him, for it. It was re, uh, created by a guy named John Martin mm -hmm. um, <coughs> in uh, sometime in the nineties. And uh, John's a great guy, and he's become someone that I'm I'm quite friendly with. Um, and he created this model that said, "What's the cost of the closet? Mm -hmm. What's the cost to organizations 
in his case, he was talking about employers, but to any organization mm -hmm. to not creating inclusive spaces for LGBTQ2 plus people. And it's a beautiful model because it really quantifies the amount of time that an LGBTQ2 plus person has to spend educating coworkers, other volunteers, other students, et cetera, um, or hiding themselves. Mm -hmm. And there is an impact to that. Yeah. Um, and so there is, to some extent, still that financial model. And I yeah. think that's an important one. It's mm. just going beyond simply <clears throat> the impact to top and bottom line. Mm -hmm. Now, you also have uh, a lot of resources on, on the website site for uh, CCDI, uh, mm. various toolkits. That would be more um, business oriented, but anything there that you would recommend? Because I was browsing through a, a few and you had some for, for schools. It looked like for yep. elementary school kids around... Um, uh, I guess just an identification and inclusion. Yeah, we've got a lot of resources yeah. uh, available, free resources at ccdi.ca yeah. um, that are really can be applied universally. Yeah. Um, we do have a we had a, a series of program that we created called See Different that was for um, high schools <clears throat> and elementary schools. It's those resource guides are available on the site. Um, you know, as an organization, our purpose as a charity is to educate Canadians on the value of diversity and inclusion, but it's also about helping people understand how to get it done, mm -hmm. how to affect the change. Mm -hmm. So there's toolkits there on how to write a business case, how to create a strategy. Um, uh, there are toolkits on how to talk about Black Lives Matter in the workplace, um, and frankly, you can swap out workplace for volunteer organization for whatever, um, you know, the principles, uh, apply across. Okay, perfect. And, uh, alphabet soup is, is planned for sometime next year, March or April, March, March 29th, 2022, perfect. two days Brilliant. before trans day of visibility. Wonderful. And. I'm going to make sure that I include all the website and social media details so that people can find you. Excellent. But the last uh, bit, you've recently started doing something that you're calling Monday Morning Musings. Tell us about that. What happens there? Well, it's not recent. I'm on season five. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes, I know. I can't slap every me time for... I. No, uh, <laughs> I'll slap you for other reasons. But um, uh, <laughs> I. Every time I write season five, I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been doing this for five years. Yeah. Uh, Monday Morning Musings <clears throat> is a very short video blog series mm -hmm. that I do. I try to do one every week where mm -hmm. I talk about whatever I want to talk about because mm -hmm. it's my show. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're usually five minutes long or less. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes I'm referencing an article. Sometimes it's a situation in the news, whatever. Um, just trying to uh, keep the conversation around diversity and inclusion, equity, accessibility, front and center. <clears throat> um, and uh, usually I make a fool out of myself every episode. I, I mm -hmm. seem to accomplish that. I don't have a producer or anything. So it's just yeah, yeah. me sitting at home with my camera and microphone and figuring it <laughs> out. And, mm -hmm. and uh, usually I, uh, I do silly things. So uh, people can check it out. Well, from the f the few I've watched, because like I said at the beginning, I you, you, what was it a couple of months ago or whatever, you showed up in my Instagram feed, and that's when I reached out. Um, you know, you look like you're having fun, and 
that just brought to mind one question. Mm. How do you, when has it been useful to you to drop the suit and tie when let's say you've gone into a corporate space and just a lot like on a personal note, note um, you know, I'm, I'm starting to look at how I can present the work I do as a, as a coach uh, with some corporate, but I have an aversion to corporate because mm. I hate ties. That doesn't mean I can't work with corporate, but there is this aspect of presentation that is expected so often. Um, and, a way of behaving. So there is getting the initial acceptance or respect, but sometimes the most important thing, the most meaningful message you can do is to be able to drop the presentation, the act. And that doesn't mean you're hiding who you are because you're coming in as, you know, I'm the D&I guy and people can see from your bio on who you are. But almost in the Judith Butler sort of sense of gender being performative. Well, we are performative in every aspect of our life. I can be performative now when I'm coming across as the host and the interviewer. Um, but I'm going to be very different when I'm hanging out with my friends when we have a drink at Woody's. And we don't always want to let one side out in certain situations, but have do you have maybe a memory of it, of a time when you just went, I just got to let go here because this is going to make all the difference. And did it work out? Uh, absolutely. I, uh, historically I, I led two lives Yeah, and that goes back to, uh, <clears throat> my in, being in my twenties and, uh, my, I didn't come out at work until I was 30. Mm -hmm. So throughout my twenties, I led this dual life of at work. I'm this straight ish kind of innocuous human being suit tie, you know, over there. And mm -hmm. then on the weekends, I'm like dancing on a speaker <laughs> in my underwear, mm -hmm. um, and which I do not do anymore for the safety of all involved. Um, <laughs> and I came out at work when I was 30. Mm-hmm. Um, still, still in the suit and tie, just gay guy in a suit and tie. Yeah. And it, it sort of progressed as I, um, I got older yeah. and I will tell you, there were two, I'll tell you two stories. So one is I came out as living with depression when I was 40. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've lived with depression my whole life mm -hmm. since I was a teenager, but I hit it. And I was speaking on a panel um, and a woman stood up and she was trying to ask a question and she was living with bipolar disorder and she was sobbing and she was, she said, there's no one like me. I'm alone. And I said, I get it. I'm like you. I live with depression. And I just blurted it out. Mm -hmm. And it was very freeing for me because mm -hmm. I stopped apologizing. Mm -hmm. um, and then as I've gotten older, the, my worlds have kind of collided and I love to now challenge people on mm. things like dress and attire. Yeah. And so when I'm doing training in person, which I have not done in a very long time, mm. um, you know, I use some slides that show people with, with pretty extreme tattoos mm. and I'll talk to people and say, okay, well, why couldn't this person work here? Mm -hmm. And they'll, 
I hear, oh, well, it's not professional and we couldn't put them in front of a client. And as they're doing it, I slowly roll up my sleeve, which is covered mm -hmm. in tattoos, mm -hmm. my arm, not my sleeve. Mm -hmm. um, and I say to them, am I any less professional because I have this? And of course, there's stunned silence at that point because mm -hmm. they, they look at me and I'm kind of a, you know, geeky white guy. You never expect me to be covered in tattoos, but I am. Mm -hmm. And I love those moments of challenging and saying, mm -hmm. how does that make me worse or better at my job? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What does this have to do with me doing my job? Mm -hmm. There are some bona fide occupational requirements. I get that. Yeah. It's 2021. <laughs> Everybody's got a tattoo. Mm -hmm. So my mother has a tattoo. <clears throat> Admittedly, it's tiny little lines from when she had breast cancer, but still it's yeah. a tattoo. Yeah. Um, it's so commonplace to see tattoos now. Yeah. What does it have to do with a person's ability to do their job? Mm -hmm. If someone's got a little tattoo on their wrist, are you, are you kidding me? Like that's, that's nothing. If someone's got a tattoo on their face that says whore, okay, maybe not so much, but, but still again, what does it have to do with their ability to do their job? Yeah. So I now, I no longer wear suits when I go into client sites, I wear a shirt and a jacket with jeans. Um, because like you, I'm not, I hate ties. I went to a private boys school. Just as soon as I get my collar kind of done up like that, I feel like my, someone's choking the life out of me. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not interested in being uncomfortable anymore. And I have that confidence to say, I'm really good at my job. Yeah. I'm really good at what I do. And we should all be like that. Yeah. And just, be ourselves because the more we can be ourselves, be mm -hmm. our authentic selves, the better we are at doing our jobs. Yeah. And ultimately then we're better for our employers or our clients. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's really important to be our authentic selves. Beautiful. I mean, in that, it, it, so often authentic as a word feels overused, but sure. it's, it's just, it's the perfect word because it expresses so much of what we've discussed today and what you just brought to light here is that when you no longer apologize for various parts of who you are, then you can show up more freely. If you're able to accept yourself for who you are, then other people are more able to accept you because they don't see a defensiveness in you, which is a very common thing for any of us that mm -hmm. are or I've had to fight for some sort of inclusion or some sort of being recognized and, and being seen for the dignity that is, it should be afforded to all of us. So mindful of your time, you've, you've given us a really wonderful wrap here, but any final thoughts or, or parting words? Oh, how long do we have? Um, <laughs> I think I would say as a, as a parting statement, the key to success with diversity and inclusion is to do something. Mm. We don't need another study. We don't need research. We need action. Yeah. Um, we need movement forward. 
even if that movement is really small, I describe mm-hmm. this work as the incremental revolution. Mm-hmm. It's tiny actions that are actually more impactful than the really big ones. But do something. Because if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you always got. Mm-hmm. And we need to move forward with those small actions in order to see some change. If you do nothing like me not going to the gym, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. Well, something does happen, which is not what you want. Well, yeah, it's not it's the opposite of what you want, which would explain why I wear stretchy pants most of the day. Michael, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. That was really helpful to me in my understanding um, of the work that you do, but also in how I think uh, going forward of, you know, we will always have our own biases, for example, um, and how I can apply that for myself, but also when I'm working with clients or, or groups of clients at the same time. It is my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you.